Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project funded by Carnegie Corporation and based out of Lancaster University's Richardson Institute. Today, I'm really excited and I get chance to talk to Kristin Smith-Dewan, who is a senior research fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute. Sorry, a senior resident scholar. I do apologize, Kristen, at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Kristen, you're someone whose work I've admired a great deal, done some fascinating work on the Gulf, and it's wonderful. Thank you so much for you, uh, for you coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. I'm honored and really glad to be participating. It's really exciting to have you here. You've done a great amount of work on some really timely issues for for, for things that our listeners are interested in and things that, that I'm interested in and things that the project is working on, looking at the Gulf, um, the politics of sectarianism, change, and the evolution of Islamism. It's all really fascinating stuff. But can you tell us, Kristen, how did you, someone from Texas, get involved in such... Uh, such issues so far away from home. Yeah, that's true. I, I got interested in these things uh, from Texas and probably in a pretty unlikely place. Um, I was actually doing my undergraduate studies at Baylor University, which is in Waco, Texas. And in fact, I was a biology major, so about right. as issues as you can get. Yeah. Um, but I guess a couple factors there. Um, kind of turned me into an interest in, in international affairs and specifically into the Arab region. Um, I was kind of a bit alienated by the, the culture at, at Baylor initially. Um, it was really centered a lot on kind of sororities and fraternities, and um, I didn't really feel like I fit in very much there. Sure. So I started hanging out with a lot of international students, um, and a lot of them were Arab students. Right, so okay. I guess those key things, just friendship sometimes has a really big uh, impact on your life. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then the second thing which is interesting is that um, Baylor is a, a Baptist university. And at that time, um, it was coming under um, a lot of pressure from the Southern Baptist Convention, which had a role in the administration of the university. And, and the Southern Baptist Convention, in turn, um, was being kind of taken over by what we called at the time the more fundamentalist wing of the Baptist. Uh, uh, the Baptist right. Um, this um, kind of Christian denomination, uh, Protestant denomination. So there was a lot of really interesting, you know, politics taking place on the cap campus and a lot of kind of religious pressure coming down um, that were affecting the things that we could do on campus. So I like to think that my whole introduction to kind of the politics of religion started right there. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so what prompted, I guess this was a, a, a consequence of friends and relationships that you were building up with people from the region. That prompted you to do an MA in international affairs. Is that right? That's right. Um, like I said, my undergraduate was in um, biology. Um, but even while I was basically studying biology, I became uh, more interested in, in politics and in international affairs. And I ended up getting a secondary degree called foreign service. Right which was influenced a lot by a professor who was teaching there at um, Baylor. And he had actually been a diplomat in the Middle East and had served um, in Lebanon and in the Gulf region. But he was originally from Waco and he came back to teach there. So he had a big impact on me, um, Dr. Colbert Held. Right. He really encouraged me to go on and do graduate study. Um, and I did. I, I ended up coming to Washington, D.C. and doing a master's degree at SAIS. 
Um, and then after working for a while, went on to do my PhD. And, and both of those were very much centered on um, pretty much, uh, you know, Middle East studies, I would say. I mean, I was doing politics, international politics, but I always kept my focus on the Arab world. Right. So Middle East studies, when you say that, you mean uh, in particular, what was it that was really piquing your interest at this point? I'd say, I mean, when I did my master's, because I had come from this background where I really didn't have, you know, any family connections to the region, and, and even my undergraduate study wasn't focused on it, it was just a general fascination with the Arab world. Um, I was able to start studying Arabic at that time. I didn't start until I was in my master's degree. Right. And I just was trying to get to the, to the Arab world every chance I could get. So um, I was really fortunate um, to... Um, be working with uh, a very famous Arab professor at the time, uh, Jerry Lampy, who was running the CASA program in Egypt. Um, and so while I was doing my master's study, I was able to, to do Arabic study in Egypt. Um, and then I just tried to get, you know, fellowships and links to come to the Arab world anytime I could. So I spent some time in um, Tunisia as well, the summer there. I spent some time um, in Palestine, uh, living in Jerusalem. And then uh, after that, I, I went to Syria. So I was basically just kind of working my way around the Arab world and, and trying to learn as much as I could. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Were there a couple of things that, that stay with you then, Kristen, from that time of, of working your way around the Arab world? Is there anything in particular that, that stays with you? Well, um, I think I was always just very focused on the connection with the people in the region. Um, I, I think maybe because it's something I came to really late, um, I, I just always found it really interesting to, to have that connection and, and to work on, you know, my Arabic language and, and to try to just find out what, what people were thinking. Um, and it just for me, I mean, even as a non, you know, academic focus, it, it taught me so much about myself to be able to see the world uh, a different way and through different eyes. Um, but I think that probably started my interest in, um, kind of thinking about politics from below. Right. Uh, and definitely when I went to do my PhD then, and I ended up, you know, wandering into the last part of the Arab world that I had <laughs> spent time in, the, the Gulf region, uh, that became really important because I, I think, you know, a lot of the times when people looked at the Gulf, they looked at it very much as these states, uh, looked at kind of the, the rulers, which of course they do have a huge impact. Sure. With families. But when I came to the Gulf, I started thinking that there was a lot going on within Gulf societies and that that wasn't getting enough attention. So I think that probably, you know, came even from those early days, just kind of wandering around the Arab world. That's really interesting. And I think that's it's something that, that comes across to me when I read your work. There is this sense of an interest in people and and telling the stories of people and how things affect people that really does come out of your work, which is it's really interesting to hear the roots of that. So then yeah. if we just return to your, your PhD then, you did your PhD at Harvard and that was in, in Middle East studies, was it? No, I actually did a government, which is political science. Right, okay. So I spent a lot of times over over at the Center for Middle East Studies, but yeah, my degree was actually in the in the government department. Oh, right, interesting. And then then that took you back out to the Arab world after that then, did it? Your insatiable desire to learn. Yeah, I, I kept trying to find ways to go back there. Um, so while I was doing my degree at Harvard, um, I initially got some uh, funding to go to Syria because um, I was thinking about doing my research on Syria at the time. And, and I really valued the time that I was able to spend in that country. 
Um, but then ultimately ended up deciding to focus my research on the on the Gulf states. So, yeah, while I was doing my PhD, I definitely went and did my research there. Um, and I managed to get a Fulbright. And at the time, it was unusual to get a Fulbright where you could go to multiple countries, which was really helpful because the Gulf states, you know, as you know, especially if you're talking about the smaller ones are almost like city states. So it was really a great opportunity to be able to do research in a number of different Gulf states. So at the time of my dissertation research, I spent time in uh, Kuwait, probably the most time there, uh, but also Bahrain and the UAE. Wonderful. That sounds like such a good opportunity to uh, to be able to, to spend such a good amount of time and, and draw comparisons between them. I wonder if sort of going back to uh, or coming back to, to the present day, if you look back on your time there, what do you think the biggest changes are that we've seen across those those smaller Gulf states, would you say? Well, um, I think really the the social life, again, those kind of instincts that I had from the beginning, trying to pay more attention to, to societies, um, really paid off because I have been going to the Gulf states for a very long time. Um, and when I went in those initial years, um, you know, I'd say that, that Gulf societies were still um, pretty insular. I mean, of course, you know, the Gulf states have these historic relations with India and around the Gulf and with Africa and, hmm. and other places. So I don't want to overstate that. Um, but I think just in terms of like family life and, and the ways that uh, Gulf, you know, people socialized, um, it, it was much more difficult, or at least I, I under, for me as an outsider, you know, when I had spent time in Egypt and, and Syria and, and the West Bank, um, I was really struck by how hard it was to, to get to know people. Um, and I think, you know, you didn't feel as much of a kind of public life as you did, you know, if I were just wandering around the streets in Cairo, you know, almost like the whole city seemed like it was available to you. Sure, yeah. Or that really wasn't the case. Um, and there's just been a tremendous growth, I would say, in um, kind of a bit more of a public life uh, in the Gulf states. Um, and of course, I don't mean to underestimate, you know, Gulfies, of course, were interacting very much um within their, their own societies and of course, within different of families and those sorts of networks. But just to have a kind of more public life, um, you know, through things like uh, the arts, uh, public spaces, um, those sorts of things, even, you know, civil society groups. Um, I'd say that there there has been quite a bit of growth in that area um, all the way across the Gulf. In the, gosh, almost 20 years that I've been going there. Wow. Yeah, I imagine that that must be quite the the transformation across the region. Just to to push back on something. Sorry, pushback's probably the wrong word, but to pick up on something. You you said that you felt that there was a a sizable difference between sort of the level of engagement and and the sense of public participation across the region from say Cairo to to somewhere in the Gulf. You you think that's is that a, a consequence of scale? Is it a, a size thing or is it more of a, a societal thing, customs? Um, I think, I mean, I think it kind of has to do, well, I hate to kind of reduce it to tribalism or something like that. But I think the kind of way that people in the Gulf uh, socialized, um, yeah, it was just, it just felt very different. There, there was uh, a lot more, you know, you can think of it even in terms of within some families, at least kind of restrictions on how women can interact, the desire to kind of protect people 
um, I, I just felt it um, kind of as an outsider that it was much more difficult to 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 break into kind of public life. Where um, and even to some degree, um, wealth kind of helped inform that in the Gulf states. Where if you went to some of these other countries, I think you know, uh, just a lot more of kind of public life, kind of almost by necessity, took place um, uh, in the streets. And and I found at least that people were much kind of more more welcoming to outsiders. And you know, if I if you walk on a street in Syria, it was unusual almost to to not have somebody come and invite you into their home. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not exactly sure of what kind of informed all of those differences, but it was definitely something that was striking to me um, in my travels around the region. That's really interesting to hear you say, because the first time I went to Bahrain, I had similar experiences of, of being welcomed into homes for, for tea and coffee. But I think things have changed a little bit in, in recent years. And I wonder if maybe going back towards where you were sort of reflecting on. And I wonder if that's a consequence of, of political evolutions. But, yeah. I wouldn't uh, want to draw too much on it. Of course, these are my own personal uh, experiences. And that's, you know, I'm sure everybody has kind of different ways of engaging and where they came in at different, you know, parts in society. And sometimes you're kind of more advantageously placed um, and received. Um, of course. But, and but to, Speaking, that was my experience. Sure, and it, it's fascinating to hear. And and of course, you're speaking from from your experience. And even in these conversations, it's it's really fascinating, and it's so refreshing to hear you speak so carefully, but so warmly about people and the complexities of of people. And it's it's something that I I really do think comes across in your writing, and it. It comes out so powerfully in the the post Arab uprisings material that you've you've covered, just the the real myriad competing issues and factors shaping human life, and it's it's really refreshing to hear you speak like that as well. When when the uprisings took place, then I mean, what were your immediate observations across the Gulf? Would you say? Well. Um... It was interesting because because around that time I had been spending a lot of time looking at um, I'd say Islamic movements in general. Mm. I was interested in a lot of the transformations that were happening inside of Islamic movements, um, and I'd say you know most strongly within the the Muslim Brotherhood and, and sort of those related movements, but kind of across the board, and, and you could see this also in a lot of the Shia political societies in Bahrain as well. Um, and, and I could sense a really strong kind of um, generational gap opening up uh, within right. these uh, political societies um, and a real desire on the part of a lot of the younger people working in them, a lot of frustration with the way that these um, political societies were functioning, um, frustration with the way that they were relating with governments and kind of the ineffectiveness um, that they felt they were having and, and introducing the kind of political change that they wanted to see. Um, so I was already kind of becoming more interested in these issues of generational change. And of course, when the Arab uprisings happened um, in, in Tunisia and then in Egypt, um, you could very quickly see how much that was resonating amongst this group of youth. Um, within the Arab Gulf, um, and very quickly you could see, you know, kind of how those those same messages that were, you know, you were hearing on the streets of of Egypt and, and Tunisia were 
were making their way to the Gulf states. Um, and I think a lot of people have kind of portrayed the Gulf states as, as states that were resistant then to um, the Arab Spring. And of course, it is true that, that none of the states were, were overthrown, or not the states, but the rulers were. Um, and you didn't have that same level of instability. But I, I would definitely argue that um, the Gulf states were very strongly impacted by by the Arab Spring, and, and it definitely resonated strongly with, with, with some parts of the population. Well, you've just preempted my next question, actually, Kristen, because I think a lot of people, if they talk about the, the uprisings, the Arab Spring, they, in the Gulf in particular, they, they think of Bahrain. Right. But... But the Gulf was affected in in many other ways, and you've written extensively about what happened in Kuwait. But I think I think some of the ideas resonate beyond even those two states. But what do you think those those that resonance was then, in terms of the uprisings? Well, um, it kind of had a number of different characteristics. I, I think for um, these young people that I, I was in contact and looking at at the time and in conversation with. Um, you could already see this this um, interest in kind of breaking beyond these social barriers that existed and, and kind of way the the politics of the states had constituted themselves. They were very strongly within these sort of, uh, well, sectarian bounds, really. You had sort of, you know, Shia political societies, Sunni political societies, uh, tribal groups, um, liberals versus Islamists. Um, yeah. And I, I think that was one thing that came across strongly was this desire to kind of uh, meet with other people and to break out of these bounds that they felt were sort of limiting the politics within the states. Um, and then I think there were, were frustrations as well with um, the economic development of the states and the limitations in that, whether it be sort of inequities or, you know, a, a perception of um, corruption that they felt there was happening from the top, or just an inability to wrestle with what they saw as really future challenges that were coming to the region um, in terms of, you know, dealing with a, a future where, where oil was, was you know, uh, going to be more limited, or at least the ability to, to continue to rely upon oil for, for the benefit of all the citizens was just not going to, to you know, be, be a model that, that could work into the future and a sense that the governments really weren't wrestling with this in any real way. So I think there were both kind of uh, social things driving it, um, political, um, economic things driving it, and, and all of those kind of things came together in a, in a, belief that the politics needed to change. So it, it was kind of like wrestling with these problems was going to require uh, greater pressures put on the, the political systems. Um, and in the states like in Bahrain and in Kuwait, where you, you had, you know, functioning parliaments, uh, you could see that there was a, this attempt to kind of move to the street to try to pressure uh, the parliament to do more, to feel like that they weren't really being effective in reacting to these issues. Yeah, and I think that's it's really interesting to note that Bahrain and Kuwait did have functioning parliamentary systems in in particular forms, of course, and to varying degrees of success. But they did, and and yet there was this this widespread frustration, and I I don't think frustration had to result in in toppling governments, as as we saw elsewhere, but but frustration had to had to have an outlet, and we saw what happened in Bahrain. And and I think people quickly forget the events of, of the Arab uprisings in Kuwait. So for those that, that have missed out, could you just quickly remind people what happened, Kristen, please? 
Well, um, it basically it took place through a series of protests, um, and, and these it's, it's important to note had started actually even before um, 2011. Um, you had had um, some growing frustration in Kuwait um, over uh, a perceived um, corruption scandal that happened within the parliament. Uh, coming from the, the prime minister at the time. Um, and it really resulted from a lot of competition that was happening within the ruling family, actually. But there had been uh, kind of accusations and, and some degree of proof that uh, you know the, par- the prime minister was uh, funding a number of uh, parliamentarians. And so basically sure, yeah. paying pred- political bribes to get support within the parliament. So it started kind of a, a you know a protest movement to pressure the prime minister, and this of course was was drawing upon a tradition that had already started in Kuwait because you had um, prior to that time uh, way back in 2000, I'm going to get my dates wrong, six I believe, um, a protest movement in Kuwait called the Orange Movement that had been pressing for a change in the the electoral districts and kind of the political system there. So, um, you know, you already had this kind of tradition of, of youth movements pressuring the parliament. And so this kind of started at that time um, and, of course, gained a lot of energy from um, the protest movements that then happened in, in Egypt and in Tunisia um, and, and rallied into uh, what became a really large street protest. Um, the largest one, I believe, uh, had close to 100,000 people on the street, wow. which is a testament to how broad... Uh, they were able to build kind of a base appeal for some kind of change, and I and I, you know, think obviously when you have a hundred thousand people in the street, um, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, probably a variety of different objectives in there, but but definitely that kind of um, desire for for some kind of change or reform was was very strongly expressed in the country. And I think. That point of having a broad brush support, having an appeal that transcends difference is, is absolutely key. Because unlike in Bahrain, where the, the Al-Halifa regime was able to very quickly circumvent calls for, for popular protests and, and democratic reform by, by creating sectarian schisms, in Kuwait that didn't seem to happen. Yet there were, there were equally, um, equally strong sect-based blocks. So just quickly, Kristin, because I'm conscious we're, we're running out of time, but how do you think that, or why do you think that didn't happen? Why didn't Kuwait descend into a sect-based um, set of protests or conflicts or instability? Well, I think you can overplay in a way that argument that there really were some sectarian you know, differences in the composition uh, of the opposition that showed up over time. Um, the Shia political society stayed quite close to the government. Um, and though I'm aware of, you know, a lot of kind of Shia individuals who, who did join the street protests, uh, in general, there was that general, that basic division. And I think over time in Kuwait to, uh, the stronger presence of, um, more tribal groups or people coming from the outer constituencies of Kuwait um, and the strong backing of some of the Islamic movements, whether they be the Muslim Brotherhood or the more activist Salafi movements, uh, definitely gave a lot of uh, liberals or more urban Kuwaitis pause. And I think that is part of the 
the divisions that did open up that weekend, the the protest movements within Kuwait over time. Um, but I do think Kuwait has some stronger resilience. Um, I think that have come uh, and kind of almost through building some kind of societal trust um, through the working of the parliament and also through the strong um, kind of civil society groups. You have a, a number of different groups, um, you know, and also the d culture that allows people to yeah. connect in different ways that I think that gives that society a bit more resilience. And I also have to say the leadership um, doesn't play on those divisions as strongly. I think they have understood that those are very dangerous things for Kuwait to be torn apart by uh, sectarian divisions. And though I'm sure we could pick out you know, individual instances where maybe that's been played up. I'd say for the most part, the the ruling family and the government tries to avoid polarizing along those issues in a really strong way. That's absolutely fascinating. And it's some very, very serious lessons, I think, to be learned from the Kuwaiti experience, both good and bad. But I think it would be interesting to, to reflect on this in in more depth at some point but i'm conscious Kristen, that you that you have to dash off and i'm very very thankful for you finding time to to talk to us just before this christmas break so thank you so much and i really hope that we get to speak to you again sometime soon great thank you simon nice talking to you thank you very much and until the next one goodbye Bye.